Well, good morning. It is certainly glad to be here this morning for me and glad to see all you good folks out uh, this morning making the right choice to be here to serve the Lord. As was mentioned in our announcements by Brother Randy, this is indeed a new year. We're, what, three, four days into this new year? So typically, what happens around this time of year? We all sit down and take a moment to say, here's all the cool things I'm going to do this year that I didn't do last year. So we're going to talk about that this morning. I think it's a very timely topic, a practice that we're all familiar with. So why not spend a few moments thinking along those lines? Our lesson is entitled, Faith on Trial. Subtitle, Are You Guilty? We'll get a little bit further into that in just a moment. So as we talk about this new year, we often have these, these resolutions, uh, this resolve that we determine in ourselves that we're going to do things better. Uh, maybe we decide we're going to have a healthier lifestyle this year. We're going to lose a few of those pounds that have somehow creeped into our waist. Maybe we're going to try to be a, a better parent, a better spouse. Maybe you want to pick up a new hobby. I tried that one last year. I picked up running. That didn't work out so well for me. I got a busted knee and some surgery out of that one, so uh, be careful the hobby you pick up, I guess. Um, most importantly, how often do we say, well, I'm going to be a better Christian this year? That's a great one. Do we stick to it? Many times, these resolutions that we made are a result of having a introspection of ourself, taking a pause out of our crazy and hectic lives and kind of taking inventory, reevaluating, if you will, reviewing our internal state of affairs. What did I do last year that was good? What did I do last year that wasn't? So why do I want to do differently this year? It's a trial, if you'll let me use that analogy, of our own self. So as we think along those lines this morning, as we've mentioned, it's, it's a good practice. It's worthy of our consideration uh, this morning, this trial of ourself. And in our lesson, what we hope to do is ask a few questions, pose a, a few cross-examinations, if you will, of ourself and determine a verdict when we think about our faith. As we just read, the Apostle Peter admonishes us along these lines. He says, be ready always to give a defense. We need to be ready to say, or even better, to show faith in our lives. He calls it hope, but I think we can use the two terms interchangeably. The faith, the hope that we we have in our lives. We have to be ready to give that defense, to give that demonstration of why we indeed claim the name of Christian. So we're going to have two major points we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the trial of Christ before the high priest, and then we're going to talk about the trial of ourselves. So we think about the trial that took place when they brought Christ before the high priest there in, in Mark chapter 14. We're, we're not going to take the, the time to do a verse-by-verse -verse analysis. We're familiar with the story, the account, the record, if you will. 
But in those verses, what we see is the political and religious leaders of the Israelite nation had determined they wanted to get rid of Christ. They wanted Him out of their lives. And they decided that they would do that by any means possible. Whatever they had to do, they would rid themselves of Jesus. They tried to use the justice system to accomplish this. They tried to convict Him of any crime that they could come up with. We know and realize that Christ had no crime. He had no sin. He did nothing wrong. He was an innocent man. But that did not stop nor deter their efforts. They were determined. So what did they do? They tried to frame the man. They went about first. They they took one of his inner circle, one of his closest companions, bought his loyalty, bought his betrayal to the cross. Verses number 43 through 45. We see that Judas Iscariot took the pieces of silver and he betrayed the Christ. They orchestrated this mob. They brought this mob against Christ trying to intimidate Him. Did it work? No. Christ wasn't intimidated. In fact, if you recall, when Christ's followers took up arms and wanted to defend Him, He actually held them back. No, no, no. I could call the angels if that were the way. So the crowd didn't intimidate Him. They brought false witnesses. These false witnesses were, were so bad that, that the stories, that the lies that they were perpetrating against Christ did not even go together. They did not agree. But yet they pressed on. They tried to take His very teaching, what He taught about His resurrection, and twist it and rest it to their motives to try to teach that he, he, was, he was raising an a insurrection against the Roman government, that he was going to raise a, a physical kingdom. They tried everything they could possibly do to convict our Lord of a crime. It's classified as a trial. It's not. It's a miscarriage, if you will, of justice. It's a travesty. It's a mocking of the justice system. And when we we consider the end of this thing, the end of this trial, we see that to some extent they may be succeeded in their own minds. Because our Lord was humiliated, spat upon, derided, reviled. They beat Him. They ultimately crucified Him. And when we think about that, our hearts are broken. We, we know and we realize that it's God's plan, that He intended for Christ to die, to be sacrificed for our sins, but we cannot help but have our hearts broken. We cannot help but weep at what He went through for our sins. And when we go back to the trial itself, we cannot help but be disturbed, upset at the injustice that was perpetrated. We think about the individuals there, how, how that they lied about him, how that they, they took his words and they twisted them, that they, they took what he taught and they changed it to, to, to false teaching, to false doctrine. 
The Bible talks about those kinds of individuals that demonstrate that attitude, how, how that they would deny His deity, how, how that they would not even recognize and acknowledge Him as the Son of God, even though they saw the evidence. Romans chapter 1, verses number 18 through 25 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, notice, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God showed it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. You see, Paul said to the church at Rome, and these folks that take that attitude, we are going to deny Christ, we are going to ignore His teachings, they do not have an excuse. Without excuse. He goes on to say, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God and to an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to their uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. That's the attitude those, guys, those individuals demonstrated during this trial. The Hebrew writer talks about it this way. He says, as for touching once, or for touching those who were once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fell away, it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing that they crucify to themselves the Son of God's afresh and put Him up to an open shame. What an attitude to deny the deity of Christ. But that injustice that we witnessed in that trial hadn't stopped. It's still going today. We see folks all about us being false witnesses, misusing Scripture, resting the words of Christ to their own ends. They want to teach doctrines of Calvinism saying, once you're saved, you're always saved, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's predestination. They want to take John chapter 2 and verse number 9, our Lord's first miracle, and they want to pull it out of context and you say, you know what? Christ made wine so I can drink socially. I say no. You look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 15. They want to take that verse, pull it out of context and say, you know what? That justifies divorce. It says you don't have to remain there. I've got a different opinion. Christ said there's one reason and one reason alone. So when they take the words that our Lord said and rest them and twist them to meet what they want, aren't they doing the same thing we saw at His trial before the high priest? Aren't they bearing false witness? And there's other things. We look at Mark 16, 15, the Great Commission. They want to forget that baptism part and say it's just about faith. They want to take modesty and they want to define it by what the world thinks, what the normal society says versus what the Scripture says. We're changing what Christ said. When we do those things, we're not any better. We are not any better than those 
that brought false witness in that trial. But we go back to the trial. Verse number 61, Christ being accused presented a defense. His defense was silence. So much so that the high priest asked him, don't you have anything to say? He was silent. He let his life speak. So the question is, this doesn't really seem like what you would think is a typical defense. Typically you want to offer testimony evidence in defense of the accusation. However, at the end, evidence is really the truth. So Christ let his life stand as his evidence. What about us? What about you? What about me? Can we do the same thing as Christ? Can we let our lives speak? Or when we look at our lives, do we see ourselves as closet Christians? Working undercover. Keeping our faith a secret. When we talk to our friends, our family, our, our, our peers, would they describe us as a follower of Christ? A loyal believer? They tried to convict Christ. Of crime he never committed. committed. So let's suppose today, for the next few minutes, that we are the ones that are being put on trial, not Christ. That, that we're being off to, off, asked to provide evidence that would provide a verdict of guilty that I follow Christ, that you follow Christ. When we look at that, is there anything that can be offered? Can we get a conclusive decision? Is there evidence that can convict us? So now we move to trial of ourselves. We looked at the trial of Christ. Let's talk about trial of ourselves. As we've talked about already, in, in law, in any court case, the verdict that is rendered is based primarily on the evidence. And the stronger the evidence, the better the case. So if I'm prosecuting this case, I'm going to go to the book. Because when I look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and number 17... It tells me that the scripture thoroughly furnishes a Christian to live the life that we ought to live. So if I want to persecute this case, I'm going to look at the book and I'm going to compare the life of the individual to what the book says we should be doing. So I'll begin with the words of Christ himself. You remember Matthew chapter 5 where he gave the Sermon on the Mount? And he starts with this passage of scripture that's commonly known as the Beatitudes, the beautiful attitudes. He lists this attribute the whole list of characteristics that anyone that would be a member of his kingdom, a follower of his, would represent in their life. So if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 16, he says, Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under foot of men. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine 
before men, that they may see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. So this would be my first cross-examination, the Beatitudes. Are they evident in your life? When you look at yourself, do you display a poverty of spirit Spirit that, that, that shows that you recognize the reliance that you have on God? You need Him. We all need Him every single day. Does your life represent that? Do you represent a spirit of meekness, allowing what God would say that we should do to mold your life in your actions? Do you represent a spirit of mercifulness, willing, having a caring, loving, forgiving heart? Does your life demonstrate a spirit of hunger and thirst for righteousness? When we think about the analogies at the end, the salt, is your salt flavorful? Or has it lost its flavor and just needs to be tossed out and trodden over? If you're that lamp on the light stand, are you giving out a light? Are you showing the goodness of God? How are you characterized? Do you have these attitudes in your life? Could you be convicted of having the, the teaching of Christ evident in your daily life? Second question, Paul, he wrote to the church at Rome, he wrote to the Christians there, and he exhorted them in chapter 12, verses number 1 and 2, to be transformed. Let's look at what Paul had to say. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Which are you? Are you transformed? Have we renewed our minds daily so that when our life is examined by anyone including self that we look at our lives and we see someone that has been transformed from the world that, that we display the attributes in our lives that says yes that is someone striving to emulate Christ in their life and I can see that can you be looked at and be distinctive be unique Paul said, be holy, set apart. Or when we look at our lives, are we simply just another part of the world? Conformed. People look at our lives and can't tell the difference between you and the next guy. Unable to be distinguished from the world. What's the verdict? Transformed? Conformed. Next, Paul, again writing to the church at Galatia, exhorting those Christians there, he instructs them concerning some works. He talks about it in two fashions. He talks about the works of the flesh, and he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He says in chapter 5, verse number 19, beginning, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, 
lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, good kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there's no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So now the question is, when we look at our lives, what kind of fruit are we bearing? He gave an extensive list of the fruits of the flesh. Some of them very egregious. Some of them maybe you don't think so egregious. He talks about uh, idolatry. Oh, we're not idolatrous. Oh, yes, we are. Anytime we choose to let something take the place of serving God first, that's idolatry. I'm sorry, but it is. He talks about heresy. He talks about contentions, selfish ambitions, jealousies. When you look at yourself and and you ask these hard questions internally and you put yourself, is that what we see? Do we see our lives molded by the passions of the flesh? Or do we see those good spirits, fruits of the spirits demonstrated? Do we see love demonstrated in our life? Kindness? Long-suffering? Patience? Gentleness? What does your life look like? What does the evidence say? When you look at the fruit basket of your life, are you guilty of the spiritual fruits? Next question. Words are very, very powerful. So powerful that that they can be used as weapons. Or they can be used as a tremendous remedy. We can tear down, we can build up. We can destroy or we can soothe. Words are so critical that James wrote about it many times. But we'll look particularly at chapter number 3, verses number 1 through 11. He says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Four. We all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we we put bits in in horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn their whole body. Look also at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever their pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. 
The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and a creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and our Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water or bitter from the same opening? You see, James was concerned about the use of the tongue. And he characterizes it there in, in several analogies, a bit in a horse's mouth, a, a rudder on a big ship, how such a small thing can make such a huge difference. What about us? When we think about our tongue, our speech, what evidence do we find? Do we find our mouths full of blessings or cursings? Do, do we find the water flowing from us being fresh, refreshing, life-giving? Or is it bitter, full of hatred, intended to tear down? You see, James was concerned. He knew how powerful our words are. Because isn't it the, the truth that when we go out and we interface with the world and we say things, we often are judged by our words as well as our actions? Words are critical, are critical to us. So when we look at ourselves, do we control our tongue? Does it control us? Next question. Suffering persecution. You see, Paul, as he was teaching the, the young evangelist Timothy, he warned him about this. He wrote him very directly that, that persecution honestly was not a question of if. It's simply a question of when. So we look at Second Timothy chapter 3. Verses number 10 through 12, Paul said, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I've endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Now notice carefully verse number 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's a strong warning. Somewhat of a prophecy. He told Timothy, if you follow this, you're going to be persecuted. 
Paul's not the only one that talks about this. You look at Christ. Matthew chapter 16, verse number 24, he characterizes it as taking up the cross. He says, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, follow me. Taking up the cross was not an enviable position. Why? If you're carrying a cross, you know you're going to suffer persecution. You look at John chapter 17, verse number 14. Christ said, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world just as I'm not of the world. James chapter 4, verse number 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These good men, through inspiration, are telling us, if you're going to follow Christ, you will suffer persecution. There's no way around it. Just as James said, if you're going to be a friend with the world, then, then you're separated from Christ. But if you're going to follow Christ, then you're going to be an enemy of the world. So the question is, suffering persecution. What persecution have we suffered? Any? I don't expect us to be dragged out into the, to the square like Christ was, put open to a public humiliation, but have we suffered any? Have, have we taken up the cross? Does the world look at us with, with somewhat disdain because we stand for the truth which is in direct opposition of what most of the world wants to do? Are we suffering persecution? Are we looked at? Are we talked bad about? Does the world see us as different? Does it characterize us as an enemy because we have the courage and the boldness as Paul did to speak the truth and tell them what is right. And when they're wrong, show them that they're wrong and help them to correct it. And you know as well as I do, when you do that, people don't like it. And they're going to, in some extent, persecute you. So the question is, have you been persecuted? So as we kind of draw all of this together, We've talked about kind of a, a supposition, if you will, of this trial. But friends, the cold hard facts is this trial is coming. It's coming. The Bible assures us of such. Everyone in this audience today will stand the trial. That's God's design. Judgment Day, we will each one stand and answer questions very similar to what we've went through today. I'm convinced of it. The judge, Christ himself. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and his angels... Then he will reward each 
according to his works. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, wrath, tribulation, anguish on every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Folks, Judgment Day is a reality. We're going to have to face it. There's no way around it. So our question this morning is, what, when we get there, what's going to be the verdict? Where are we going to stand? Are we going to stand with those that, that, that achieve glory and honor and immortality because we strove after Christ? Or are we going to be left with those suffering, indignation, and wrath, anguish, those are the two sentences that will be passed after judgment has been rendered. So, this morning we'll finish with this question. Are you guilty? Are you guilty? If you look at your life and you examine your heart of hearts, do you feel you could be convicted of being a Christian? Now's the time. If that's not the case, let's fix it. Let's make the changes that are necessary. Let's make those resolutions we talked about in the beginning. That yes, indeed, I will live a life that can be convicted of following Christ. It starts with obedience to His gospel. If you haven't followed the plan of salvation, you haven't obeyed the plan of salvation, what hinders? Why linger? Why not make it right today? It starts with hearing the word, believing the word, repenting of sins, confessing Christ as the Son of God, and then being buried with Him in baptism. Or if you're kind of like those folks talked about by the Hebrew writer, you've once tasted the good gifts, but you've kind of strayed off the path. Again, why linger? Now is the time. Be sure of your calling and your election. If you have any need, won't you come while we sing our imitation song?